All right, this is, uh, this is a second week of our series, Supernatural. How many of you were here last week for our series? Okay, if you weren't here last week, we talked about, <clears throat> we talked about where the battle takes place. Uh, Ephesians talks about the fact that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in the heavenly realms, okay? So that's where the battle takes place. And so many times I see believers live like that other believers, other people are the enemy. And so they take all of their anger, all of their frustration, all of their hatred, all of their disappointment, and they direct it at other people. And they just blast them, blast them, blast them, blast them, blast them. And we see it all over the place. And that's the reason why so many people that are not Christians don't want to come to church because they see the hypocrisy of Christians that don't understand where the battle is really fought. The battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the evil spirits that influence the flesh and blood battle. Now, how do you know you're in a battle? You know you're in a battle because you're bleeding, right? You know you're in a battle because you hurt. You know you're in a battle because your finances are struggling. And the enemy is doing everything that he can to hurt you, to sidetrack you, to get your eyes off of Jesus and onto your circumstances. And so we got to recognize where the battle is fought. This week, I want to give you the background, the history of the battle, the history of spiritual warfare. And we got to go way, way back in order to learn the history of spiritual warfare. Um, let me just say, by way of explanation, this is a little bit difficult topic to wrestle with because there's not like a section of scripture that says, here's a historical account of how the spiritual warfare began. In 70 billion BC, the enemy, you know, you don't, we don't have that account. It would be so super cool if we do, but we don't. So what we have to do is kind of take scripture throughout the Bible and say, okay, that makes sense with that. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, these are talking about the same thing. And we got to kind of piece things together and make sense. But I feel like we've got a really good solid case based on biblical evidence for what I'm going to be teaching today. And, um, but some of it uh, is probably going to be new to some of you. You're going to be listening. You're going to be like, I didn't know that. Well, that's weird. Hey, Pastor, you're teaching some stuff here that I've never heard before. What are we doing with this? So, but I think this is important. First of all, I'm a huge history buff. I love history. I like to read history. Historical uh, biography is my favorite. I love reading biographies. Um, this year, I read, um, I read the biography of Einstein. I read an autobiography of Booker T. Washington that was like phenomenal. Um, I read, um, I read Leonardo da Vinci this year. I've read several autobiographies and biographies this year that have really just been cool. I like to understand the historical context of the person, right? And so it, it opens your eyes. Booker T. Washington was particularly fascinating to me because you get to read a first-person account of someone who lived through slavery, came out of slavery, and ended up creating the Tuskegee Institute, which shaped the educational culture of African-American people in the United States. Totally shaped it. Amazing. And when you read this guy's story, you're like, are you kidding me? 
That's what you had to overcome. Are you kidding me? That's the way you felt? This is so cool. And I'm telling you, the revelation that you get when you get into the history behind things helps you to process information with regard to that subject. So as we're studying spiritual warfare, as we're learning how to fight a spiritual battle, it's important for us to understand the history of this spiritual war that we fight. Do you know that the enemy doesn't care about you? Did you know that the enemy is not interested in fighting fair? The Geneva Convention does not apply in the spiritual world. He does not care about you. We already know his game plan, according to John, right? It's to, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He'll rob you. He'll beat on you. But ultimately, his goal is to completely savage your life in every way that he can. And you think, man, I'm down now. I'm struggling now. I'm hurting now. I just need a break. Maybe I'll get a break. No, that's that when you're down, that's when he's going to step on your kidneys. When you're down, that's when he's going to kick you in your eye. When you're down, that's when he's going to come after you with everything that he's got in the tank. He wants to obliterate you. That's his job. So why? We've got to understand the why behind this spiritual battle that we're fighting. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. And as we turn to Ezekiel 28, um, I'm going to go back before the creation of the world. See, the, the Bible we look at as, as kind of it informs history for us as humanity, right? But the, the Bible is not a history book. The Bible is the story of the redemption of humanity. That's the thread that weaves all the way through Scripture is redemption. The goal of the Bible is to talk about redemption. So from the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, all the way through the book of Revelation, it's redemption, 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 redemption. That's the story. Okay, so as we look at this, we, we can't look at it as this gives us all the information that we need to know about everything throughout eternity past, right? That's not what the Bible's designed for. The Bible is designed to talk about the redemption of humanity. That's what Jesus died for. Everything in the Old Testament points to the cross. Everything in the, the, New, Test, everything in the New Testament looks back at the cross. That's the whole point of Scripture. And so as we look at this, we have to go back before Genesis chapter 1 to begin to get an understanding of what's going on. So Ezekiel chapter 28 gives us this. Now, we're introduced to a character in Ezekiel 28 called the king of Tyre. There's a real person called the king of Tyre. Some of you might have heard when David was building the temple in um, Jerusalem and when he was building or when Solomon was building the temple and when David was building his palace, he got lumber. Does anybody remember where he got the lumber from? The king of Tyre, Hiram, the king of Tyre. Now, this is not the same king of Tyre. This is a different one. That's what a, a master's degree will get you right there. And so the king of Tyre supplied lumber for the building project. He also supplied skilled labor. And in return, Solomon and David provided him with incredible amounts of food and, um, and, and trade items to kind of repay him. Later on, as things kind of devolved with the people of Israel and the, the nations around them became more and more hostile toward the people of Israel, as the superpower started to wane, the wicked city of Tyre began to rise up. They had an incredible navy, but the king of Tyre thought that he was untouchable. 
He thought that he was so powerful, nobody could ever touch him. And he put himself on a pedestal as a God. Okay, so now Ezekiel is giving a prophecy to this guy, the king of Tyre. And he makes some interesting comparisons between the king of Tyre, who tried to exalt himself and say he's a God, and also Satan, who exalted himself and tried to put himself in the place of God. And so I'm going to skip the first part. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 1 through 11 um, is the first part of the prophecy that Ezekiel gave. And he gives this part to directly to the king of Tyre. And he starts making specific prophecies about what's going to happen to the king of Tyre. Now, where it starts to get interesting is in verse 13, where um, Ezekiel now starts to make the comparison between the king of Tyre and Lucifer. So Lucifer was an angel, right? The word Lucifer just means the shining one. And, um, and, and so there's this idea that when God created um, the angels, he created them and made them like him. Remember in, in scripture, when God created man, it says, uh, let's make man in our image, right? And so he, he gives a part of himself to humanity. Well, he also did the same thing with the angels in this idea of light. You know, every time you read about God in scripture, there's light associated, right? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, right? It talks about the light of the world and, and how the word was the light and that light was the light of men and the light shined in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it, right? So there's this whole breakdown of Jesus as the light of the world. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And later he says, you're the light of the world. Why does he say that? Because there's this part of us that is like God that radiates his light, there's also this part of the angels. Matter of fact, when you read about angels all through scripture, they're called the stars of the heavens. Stars of the heavens. It's almost as if when God created, he's spinning his light out and the light is becoming angels. It's just the way that it, it, it seems to be the picture of scripture. And so as we, 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 we get this picture of the, the angels and the stars, then we start to see how that begins to apply in this context. So let's look at Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13. It says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, that's interesting, right? That word Eden. Anybody heard the word Eden before? Does that sound familiar? Where else do we read about that? Genesis, right? The garden of Eden. This is a different Eden than the Eden we read about in Genesis Chapter one, there's also a parallel here, though, to Adam, and we'll see that in a little bit. But there's a parallel here to Adam, how how Satan or Lucifer, when he was created, he had access to an Eden or the place where God's presence dwelt. OK, and so he had access and we're going to read about that next. It says it says your clothing was adorned with every precious stone, red carnelian, pale green peridot, white moonstone, blue green barrel. Onyx, green jasper, blue lapis lazuli, turquoise and emerald, all beautifully crafted for you and set in the finest gold filigree. This is interesting because if you're a student of the Old Testament at all, this sounds very similar to what you would see the high priest wearing, right? The high priest wore a, a breastplate as a part of his ephod. 
And on that breastplate, there were 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Each stone had a name. The name corresponded to a tribe of Israel. Each line of stones, there were three, there were three um, columns of stone and four rows, okay? So that gives us the 12 stones. And each line represented something different. It's interesting because this ephod that Satan had exactly parallels the ephod that the priest wore, except it's missing a row. And we don't have enough information to really kind of discern what row was missing. And you'll read a lot of articles on the internet and, and people say, well, it was the judgment row that was missing because he didn't have any, all of this stuff. And it's just kind of like, okay, that's a great guess. That's fun to talk about. That's a great conversation in your dorm at Bible college. You know, that's, that's, that's about all it is because we don't have the information. It's great on a chat room on a theology website, like do that. But we don't have enough information to kind of make judgments. But we know that he had access to God in a way that the other angels didn't. He's called, Lucifer is called the anointed one. He was, had a special place. The idea that he wore this breastplate, breastplate seems to mean that he had special access to God that the other angels did not have. Just like the high priest had access to God that the people he represented did not have. And so there seems to be some parallel here. So as we read on, it says, Um, They were given to you on the day you were created. So from the very day that Lucifer was created, God gave him this special anointing. It's as if he were saying, I am making all of these incredible, beautiful angels, but I'm going to show everybody what beauty really looks like as I make Lucifer the anointed one. That's what he's called in scripture, the anointed one. So as we look at this, he says, I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. So this is a very special position that he had. God anointed him. Again, what do we see with the priesthood? Before they wore the ephod and the breastplate, what do we see that had to be done to the priest before they were allowed to wear it? They had to be anointed, right? So there is this idea that they were anointed by God for this position to represent the people. This is the same kind of language that's used to describe Lucifer's position in heaven. I know it's weird. I know this is probably new to some of you, but this is what the Bible says, okay? How we interpret it, we get a little bit dicey, but we can, we can at least draw these strong parallels between what we see the high priest doing and what we see um, is given to Lucifer as a position, It says, you had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. Now, what in the world does that mean? You walked among the stones of fire. We don't know, again, exactly what all this means because we we would love to have like that chronological history of this spelled out for us in scripture, but we don't. By the way, this is going to be a lot of teaching this week, guys. So if you're, if you're used to the preaching and a lot of illustrations, there's not going to be a lot of illustrations this week. There's a lot of teaching because this is history. And in order to be ready to fight the battle, I need you guys to understand the history of the battle. So hang with me because this is a lot of teaching and you really need to follow along. I encourage you to write notes, go back and check it out, look at it, see if what, what I'm saying is true. Be a Berean. Go after this stuff because this is really important. 
So, um, so we know in Exodus chapter 24, if you want to read this later, Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 and 10, um, Moses gets together with Nadab and Abihu and some of the other elders, and they go to the mountain of God, and God appears before them, right? And it talks about when they see God, he appears in fire, and they see his feet, and beneath his feet are these stones of fire, this this stone of fire beneath, it's almost as if God shows up and when his presence comes, they get this little peek into what the throne room of God looks like just around his feet. But it says that there's this blue lapis lazuli around his feet that he stands on because God's not even standing on the stone of the mountain. Wherever God shows up, his authority, his kingdom, his throne show up with him and he's standing on this blue lapis lazuli. And it says that Satan had access to the throne room of God and was able in this position to be able to see and understand and identify in the presence of God. So, so there's this. It says, you walked among the stones of fire. Verse 15, you were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. Think about that. We don't know how, how long between the time Lucifer was created and the time evil was found in him. We don't know. We don't know how long that was. Was it five minutes? Was it 500 years? Was it 500 million years? We don't know. We don't know. Did time exist when Lucifer was created? I don't know. We know that we measure time based on the creation order. We know that we track human history back about 10,000 years. But we don't really know the answer to this thing. So how does a perfectly created being have sin show up in their life? How does a perfectly created being have sin show up? How does that happen? Again, this is another parallel we see with Adam, right? He was created perfectly but chose to sin. Why is that? The only way that you can be incapable of sin is if you're God, right? But God can't create God because anything that is created can't be God, right? Because God is preexistent. So you can't create God. God just is. He is the, as he appeared to Moses said, the I am. Hey, God, can you define yourself for me? Sure. You ready? I am. I was looking for a little more detail. It covers it. Don't worry about it. But, but who are you? I am. <laughs> like mic drop, like I am. Just, well, well are you the provider? I am. Are you my strength? I am. Are you my shepherd? I am. Are you hope? I am. Do you see how this works? Who are you, God? Fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. Because I am. I am. I am. The all-sufficient one. 
I am. So as God creates creation, in order to have a love relationship with his created beings, he has to give choice as a part of the puzzle, right? Because you cannot mandate a love relationship, can you? As much as we would like to sometimes, as much as people, how many of you have been in a situation in your marriage where you're struggling and you think, man, I just wish I could make them love me. I know none of you have ever experienced anything like that, right? But that's the nature of our desire, but it would negate love, right? If I could force you to love me, it wouldn't be love. And so God, in his incredible knowledge, chose to make love the highest ethic. He says there is no higher ethic than love. The Pharisees asked Jesus a question. They said, hey, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love What's the greatest ethic? Love. And in order for love to exist, choice must exist. And so Lucifer has a choice when he's in heaven. Am I going to give glory to God or am I going to try to grab glory for myself? And you see, the choice was difficult for Lucifer. And we read it and we're like, come on, Lucifer, why would you do that? How many of you have ever looked at Adam and Eve and think, why would you do that? That was just dumb, especially if it was an apple. You're like, I've never had an apple that good, right? I don't believe it was an apple. I really believe the tree of knowledge of good and evil had Reese's peanut butter cups growing on it. And, and I think that's why it was so hard for them. You know, they're walking by and they're like, I had the apples, had the pears, had the passion fruit. That looks serious, Right? I don't know exactly what, but I'm thinking it had to be something on that level that would cause you to sin. Because I'm telling you right now, I have sinned around a king-size Reese's peanut butter cup. I'm just saying, I have. And, and there, are, there are these things that we cry out for, that we want, that we feel like we don't have enough of. And if I could just have that, then I would be complete. But God says, you, you can't get enough of you. You are insatiable. You can't feed yourself enough. You can't get enough. You can't get enough attention. You can't get enough money. You can't get enough stuff. You are insatiable. That's why your satisfaction has to be in him and in loving him. Because you can't satisfy yourself. Your paycheck can't be big enough to make you happy. Can't happen. And I've read all of the, you know, the, the cute little comments, you know, money can't buy happiness, but it can buy a beach house, and that's close. You know, I, <clears throat> I've read all of that stuff, and I'm telling you, um, it doesn't work. It's not fulfilling. It's not fulfilling. So <clears throat> Satan, Lucifer, is in this place where he sees God getting the glory. And he thinks, man, I'm pretty fine by comparison to the rest of the angels. I mean, look at this. I got this whole gold thing. I got, the, I got all the stones in here. You guys don't have that, do you? So check this out. Look how awesome I am. And he starts to believe his own press. Apparently, some of the other angels are like, 
Lucifer looked pretty fine, though. I'm just going to say he looks pretty fine. He's, you know, he's, he's, got the, he's got a nine pack. And that's a Lego Batman reference, if you were wondering. <clears throat> he's got a nine pack. He's got, you know, he's got the, the, the gold encrusted ephod breastplate. He has a special position next to God. He's pretty awesome. We can't get to God like he can. He's really special. And so Satan comes from the presence of God and interacts with the angels. We read in Isaiah 14 that he begins to market himself to the other angels to the point where approximately a third of the angels choose to side with Satan who says, I will ascend the hill of the Lord. I will become like God. And they're like, hey, that sounds good. Let's do it. And so you see this begin to happen. Everybody who bears God's image has a choice. You have a choice. Are you going to pursue God and lavish him with his glory? I'm telling you, this is the battleground. 100% of the time, glory is the battleground. And God will not share his glory with you or anybody else. He deserves it all. The problem is, is that pride starts to rise up within us. And if you don't think that you wrestle with pride, that's the first sign that you wrestle with pride. If you think that pride is a non-issue in your life, you're too proud. Because you struggle with it. We all struggle with it. And what I see in the lives of people is that they, they kind of get stuff and they think, hey, this puts me in better standing. Why is it that, that Christians in poverty and in struggle and in persecution tend to do so much better spiritually than Christians in America? Because we got so much of God's stuff that we don't need him anymore. Let that settle into your spirit for a second. You say, God, I'm not really interested in you. I just want your stuff. So bless me, give me, help me, protect me, secure me, give to my kids, give to me, give. I just need, I need, I need, I need, I need. And God wants you to say, you are enough for me. I, if you, God, if you never bless me, with anything else the rest of my life, I'm blessed more than I deserve. If I came out of the womb naked and went to the grave naked, I got more than I deserve because you died on the cross for my sins. Think about that, guys. Think about that. This is so important, so relevant. Verse 16 says, your rich commerce led you to violence and you sinned. This idea of violence, it's aggression toward God. It's standing in the face of God saying, I'm going to take over your place. I'm greater than you. And then it says, so I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, almighty guardian. So I gave you a position to be a guardian, a covering for the other angels, and you chose to come and attack your covering. And in the process of attacking your covering, you got expelled. 
because there's authority in God's world, right? And you cannot rebel against the authority that God places in your life and expect God to bless you. It doesn't work. He proves it over and over again in Scripture. And so here he's telling Satan, hey, look, I set you in place as a guardian, and now I have to expel and banish you from your place among the stones of fire. Again, that's that presence of God place that we're talking about. Your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty, your wisdom corrupted by your love of splendor. So your wisdom gets corrupted when you try to exalt yourself. Your wisdom becomes corrupted. It becomes tainted. It becomes polluted. It becomes unusable when you exalt yourself. Why is it that so many really smart people end up getting so smart that they don't believe in God? Because their wisdom has become corrupted and it becomes worthless. It becomes worthless. I always wonder about people that think that they're so smart that they've made God non-existent. How much do you really know? If you think about all of the knowledge there is in the universe that you can possess, how much of it do you think that you possess? Sit down and talk to a neuroscientist for about five minutes. Find out how much you know about neuroscience. Sit down and talk to an oncologist. Find out how much you know about cancer. Five minutes would be all it takes to expose how little you know. Right? We're just talking about two fields of study. And I know people that study, I know a rocket scientist that would tell you, we're just scratching the surface of what can be known about rocket science. It's just one field. It's just one area that I am completely ignorant of. If I am completely ignorant in that one area that really has no bearing or impact on the universe, how can I possibly, with courage and integrity, say, there is no God and there can't be a God? You're proving yourself a fool by that statement. And so Satan, with his corrupted wisdom, exalts himself above God. I'm smarter, I'm prettier, I'm better, I've got a bigger following, I'm more impressive, check me out. I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to remove you. All right, let's read on. Verse 17, the second part says, so I threw you to the ground. I love that. There's this Saturday Night Live parody that I love. And um, is the goo- how many of you have ever seen the th- I Threw It on the Ground video? I'm not a part of this system. It's, it's the funniest thing ever because this, this guy, the whole, it's like a, a, a rap. And this guy, I wish I had the video, but I don't have it and I'm not going to show it anyway. So, but this, this whole thing, this guy, his, his, uh, his girlfriend shows up and says, um, she hands me a cell phone, says it's your dad. I said, my dad's not a phone. I threw it on the ground. And there's like this big, it's hilarious. And it, it, for me, it's every time I read the words, throw it on the ground, I think, but my mind can't help but go to, I threw it on the ground. 
So when, when I see God, Satan comes to God trying to strut his splendor and God's like, I threw it on the ground. I'm not a part of this system. You know, it's just, I don't know. I feel that. Okay. Thank you guys for going with me on that. It was the entertainment of the day for me. Thank you, truly. So he throws him to the ground. How many of you, when you hear Satan say, I'm going to go exalt myself above God, you can just imagine, like this comes to your mind, dumb, right? Touch your neighbor, say, dumb, <laughs> dumb. So God casts him to the ground. Where, where is the ground? Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15 says that he threw him to earth. He was cast down to earth. All right, this starts to get interesting. Man, I've got so many more scriptures that I want to go over um, with you. But for sake of time, I'm going to move on. So, so God does not mess around with his glory. He says, no, 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 no. You're going to try to exalt yourself against me. I will throw you to the ground immediately. You will have no option of being in my presence. And you will find out what it feels like to be distanced from almighty God. So he throws him to the ground. He says, see, you thought you knew. You thought you knew. You thought you had all of the knowledge. You thought you knew everything, but you miscalculated. And now you're going to suffer the consequence of your miscalculation. Now you're going to experience what wrath feels like from the God that you try to exalt yourself against. I flip over to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So as we read this passage, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty and dark. Let me ask you a question. How many things does God create that are formless, empty, and dark. God creates perfection, right? He created Lucifer. And what's his evaluation of Lucifer after he creates him? You were flawless in perfection. When he creates light, he saw that it was good. When he creates the waters, he saw that it was good. When he creates animals, he saw that they were good. When he creates man, he says, I saw it was very good. God creates things perfectly. But everywhere that Satan shows up, darkness, formlessness, and chaos follow. So I don't know, and... I'm going to step away from the Bible for a second. I'm going to give you my opinion for a minute, okay? Because I don't have enough scripture to talk about this, but this is my opinion. One of the things that many Christians struggle with is the geological rec records of Earth, right? When scientists say, hey, look, this is a million years old. This is 30 million years old. This is 300 million years old. And, and Christians get all knotted up over it, right? Because we see that God created the heavens and the earth. And then we see that God created light. And then God created water. And he separated the waters from the waters. And he called it land in between. And then God created the firmament and the stars and the sky and all of this stuff. And so we, we really get knotted up because 
geologists show that the earth is millions of years old. And we really wrestle with this, don't we? And, and, and then some Christians get so mad and, and they want to kind of push back the science and say, well, it's just wrong. It's just not true. It can't be. And, and all that stuff. And I, I don't really think that's important. I don't think that's significant. Right? We know that millions and millions of years ago, he created Lucifer and the angels. So why couldn't have he created earth and the firmament and everything in it? And then when Satan fell... It brought chaos and division, disorder. Even scientists would say, hey, look, at some point, the thing that really got Earth off track was there was this massive meteor shower that pelted the Earth and destroyed it. Hmm. I know about God throwing some stuff down to Earth. Seems like that would make an awful big ruckus. I'm just speculating. This isn't me preaching out of the, the word here. I'm just speculating, filling in the gaps. But at some point, when God made the decision to create man, he said, I got to give man a house. I got to make it habitable. I've got to fix the darkness and the chaos that Satan has created. Now, this is what I love that God does. Turn to Job chapter 38. Is this okay, guys? Are we all right? I know this is a lot of teaching. Job chapter 38. Start with verse 4. It says, where were you? This is God talking to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. I love how God talks about how he created man a little lower than the angels. Created man just a little lower than the angels. Turn to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8, verse 3 says, When I look at the night sky and I see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are the mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. Yet you made them only a little lower than God. The word that's used there for God should not be capitalized as Elohim. Um, the type of Elohim that's used here is referring to angelic type people, not really God himself. So it made them a little lower than the angels, your version may say. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. So, so who, who did God place in authority after they were created? Humanity, right? And here's what I think is so cool. And I'm going to get into some more of this stuff next week. But God comes down to Satan's house and he starts to, he starts to put his hands on it, right? Because Satan has been cast to the earth and when he does, he brings destruction and violence and chaos and, and then God says, wait a second, I'm going I'm to do something 
to, to mess up Satan a little bit. Because we know, according to Matthew, that Satan is designed ultimately for hell, and that's going to be his final destination, right? He and the angels that he took with him will end up in hell, and they'll be bound forever in a lake of fire. And the scripture says that, that maggots will be his blanket and worms his covering. That's descriptive, isn't it? Check that out. So, so we know that's his final destination, but I love what God does because he, he's going to put an exclamation point on his authority. Between the time Satan was cast down to earth and between the time he ends up in the lake of fire, God says, I'm going to put an exclamation point on my authority over you. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to create man in my image, but a little lower than the angels. And what I'm going to show you is that I can do more with humanity that's not as powerful than you, but believes in me than you could do with all of your angelic power trying to exalt yourself above me. Check that out. And so God creates man. I'm telling you guys, this is so cool. This is so cool. So listen to these parallels, though. God makes Lucifer perfect with a choice. God made Adam perfect. With a choice. Adam's home was called Eden. Lucifer's home was called Eden. Lucifer was given charge over all of angelic creation. Adam was given charge over all of natural creation. Lucifer had access to God. Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. On earth, there are fallen humans and righteous humans. In the spirit world, there are fallen angels and righteous angels. Do you hear the parallels here? Do you see how God is drawing this thing out? He's trying to illustrate a point to Lucifer who tried to exalt himself above God and say, look at what I made you to be. Look at who I made you to be. And you threw it all away. Now I'm going to make somebody a little bit less than you that I can do more through because of their belief in me than you could do in all of your power exalting yourself above me. So if God is greater, why does he allow Satan to do what he does? Why does God allow Satan to do what he does? People think that Satan is the opposite of God. They think that he um, works as a contrasting figure to God. Let's do, let's do a little test real quick. You ready for this? What is the opposite of up? What is the opposite of light? What is, the, what is the opposite of full? What is the opposite of God? Okay, so, so the tendency is to say Satan. But that is not a true statement. It is impossible to compare. It, we shouldn't even use the word Satan in the same sentence as God. Because God is so much more infinitely powerful than Satan. On Satan's best day, God would just have to go. And he's like, boom, it's over. He is not the opposite of God. There is no opposite to God. Nothing can exalt itself above God. God is the all-sufficient, great I am. There is nothing 
They can put itself so high that it could become his opposite. Hold on to that. See, because God throughout scripture demonstrates a principle. I can do more with less. I can do more with less. Look at the miracles of Jesus. Hey, hey, we got to feed these 5,000 men plus all of the women and children that came with them. What are we going to do? What you got? I got some bread and some fish. I got like a McFish and a few extra buns. Give it to me. Watch this. It's interesting that at the end of that, they pick up 12 basketfuls of leftovers. Like whose fridge are they going to put that in when they get back? 12 basketfuls of leftovers. What's interesting to me is God says to the disciples, he says, bring me what you have. Okay, this is all I got. And at the end of it, God makes this statement, Jesus makes this statement, not only did I provide for the 5,000 and all of their attachments, but now I've got a leftover doggy bag for each one of you disciples to take home with you. Not only does this little bit provide for all of them, but I'm also taking care of your needs. I just want you to know who your provider is, okay? I just want you to know who's taking care of you. I don't know if you heard this, this little story about this kid. His name was David. And this powerful giant named Goliath comes down into the valley of Ella and says, send me a man. Send me a man. God says, I don't need a man. I'm going to send a boy. But check it out. I got all this armor and I got this sword and spear. What you going to do, little man? I thought I'd do something a little bit with a little rock. A little leather strap, some sandals. Boop. Game over. I tell you what, I don't even need a sword. I'll just use your own sword to finish defeating you. I don't have to come with the weapons because I came with God. And I don't know how big you think you are, but in comparison to my God, you're pretty small. God's got a habit of this. He's got a habit of this. Isn't it interesting that it seems like Lucifer begins to taunt the people of God? And he says, send me a man. Send me a man. And there's a discussion around the throne room of heaven. God says, I got you. Jesus, you ready? And Jesus takes off his kingly robe, sets it on his throne, steps out of heaven, down into earth as a baby, wrapped in swaddling clothes, and says, I got this. I got this. Satan says, send me a man, God says. Okay. I got you. I got you. Gang, you may wonder, why in the world, Pastor, are you teaching this? This is such, like, weird, like, abstract, 
like out there, cosmic. The reason that I feel it's important for you to hear this is because last week we talked about how real the battle is, but understanding the history of the battle gives you an understanding of what the stakes are. See, if you don't know why the battle's happening, if you don't understand why the enemy is pursuing you, if you don't understand that there's a wrestling match for glory throughout creation and that God ultimately says, no, it's all mine. I'll give you a lot of stuff, but the glory's mine. I'll give you healing. I'll give you miracles. I'll give you salvation. I'll give you access to heaven. I'll give you a relationship with my son that gives you access to me, but you don't get the glory. You bring that to me every time. It belongs to me. And Satan says, I'm going to try everything I can to wage war in such a way that man is always looking to ascribe worth to something other than God. How much money do we spend on entertainment? How much money do we spend on food? How much value do we give to those things? How much value do we give to the stuff we possess? I'm just talking about your checkbook. I'm not even talking about your affection yet. How much time do you spend with the television? These are all, I think, very valid questions because the wrestling match is glory. Is there anything wrong with watching TV? No. Of course not. The question is, what gets the bulk of your attention? Are you able to go through your day and keep your attention focused on the one who saved you? That really is the secret to life in Christ. It's, just, it's all about focus and glory. It's all about focus and glory. God, I'm focused on you. As I go through my day, I'm focused on you. As I work, I'm going to do everything to the glory of God because you deserve it. As I, as I mop this floor, I'm not doing it to please the people around me. I'm doing it because I want to reflect your glory in what I do. As I teach, as I talk, as I communicate, as I love, I want to do it to reflect the glory of God. Why? Because that's the battleground. It's the battleground. Why is this so significant? The devil already knows his future. He also knows the potential for your future. And he does not want you to have what was rightly designed for him. But he fell short of by his glory seeking and now does not have access to. But you, through the person of Jesus, have access to what was designed for him. I can't wait for next week. I can't wait for next week. Because now Satan is mad at you. Man, he hates you. He wants to destroy you. And everything that he does is to bring himself glory and to see you destroyed. That's it. Stand with me. Let's pray. 
I, I really, I so desperately have so much more I want to teach, but I'm just going to put things off till next week. Um, mm. I hear people all the time say, man, I'm mad at God. I'm mad at God. So I'm going to I'm going to walk away from God. As if somehow you made God's life worse by walking away from God. Like now God's incomplete because you got mad and walked away. Who are you punishing by walking away from God? Yourself. When you walk away from God, you're walking away from the only one that can help you. The only one that can strengthen you. The only one that can win a victory for you. Instead of pushing back, lean in. Man, we, we love to push back from the pain. We don't like pain, do we? I don't like pain. But I believe firmly that pain is very often the chisel God uses to shape himself in us. And so when we push back to the pain, we're pushing back to the process that God is using to form something positive in us. What would happen, though, if instead of pushing back to the pain, we would just grab a hold of it and say, God, chisel, work on me. Lord, use this moment. Use this moment to shape me. God, I want to be the man that you've designed me to be, and I know that I'm not there. So, God, please, in this moment of pain, in this moment of betrayal, in this moment of, 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 of um, extraordinary difficulty, Work your purpose in me so that you can be glorified through me. That when people see me go through this struggle, they see you in me, not so that I could be lifted up, but so that you could be lifted up. God, I pray today that as we leave this place, we would do it with a new understanding, a new level of authority, and a new passion to serve you. Lord, that we would get serious about this battle that we're fighting because we are fighting a battle. And no matter whether we want to fight it or not, we're in it. We just got to decide whether we're going to fight it the right way designed for victory if we're going to fight it the wrong way designed for failure. And so God, today, we make a decision as a body of believers to fight this battle your way. In Jesus' name we pray. The whole church said... Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.